Okay, now, here is the question. Bible. Do you have the right books in here? Or did somebody make a mistake and put some things in here that shouldn't be here? Or are there some things missing that should be added, like the Apocrypha? Uh, these books, uh, some things between the Old and New Testament that the Roman Catholic Church counts as scripture, but here at Scottsdale Bible, we don't count these as scripture. Why not? So that's the question. What books belong in the Bible, and how did they get there, and who decided? So we'll talk this morning about the Old Testament, and next week about the New Testament. It's really important to know, isn't it? Because you don't want to have something in there that you can't trust. It'll lead you astray. But if you're supposed to have some other things, then you better go get them and read them. So it's important. So that's the, that's the question of the canon of Scripture, and that's what we'll be talking about this morning. So, explanation. The canon. The word canon, canon means a list, a list of books that belong in the Bible. The canon of Scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. And we must not underestimate the importance of determining which books belong in the Bible. How many people, does everybody have this outline? Anybody doesn't have it? Okay. If you need one, hold. If you need an outline, hold up your hand. And Rod in the back has extra copies. Just keep your hand up, and uh, we'll get a copy too. <clears throat> the words of Scripture are the words by which we nourish our spiritual lives. Moses said to the people, talking about the words that he had written so far, particularly Deuteronomy, but I think by implication, all of the books of Moses. It is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land and in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So um, uh, God is saying through Moses, um, uh, by this, by these words uh, you shall live long in the land. Now, I have realized that the door is open behind this screen, and I think I'd, it's going to bother me for the whole hour. So there we go. Thank you, Bob. Okay, there we go. Now we got a flat. So it's important. Um, and to add to or subtract from God's words would be to prevent God's people from obeying him fully. There was a warning. Uh, Moses said, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. <clears throat> if you add something to the Bible, <clears throat> then... People are obeying something that God hasn't commanded. And so they're not really just obeying God's commands. They're obeying something else. If you take from it, then it's not getting all the instructions that you're supposed to have. And then you're not being obedient to God's words either. So don't add and don't take from it. So it's very important to know. So now we start with the Old Testament canon. Well, the Bible itself testifies to the historical development of the canon. The earliest collection of written words was the Ten Commandments, which God himself wrote on two stone tablets. We talked about that a little bit last week, and we're going to start here again. The tablets, Exodus 32, 16, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, that, that is very important for our understanding of how the canon grew. What happened was 
we got the the first part was the Ten Commandments, which God Himself wrote on these tablets of stone. So now we have a collection of words that are the written words of God, and that's the that's the beginning. That's the first words that were basically in the in what became now what we call the Bible, when the people had written words of God uh, in the Ten Commandments. That's the beginning. Now, did anything get added to it? Yes, the collection of authoritative words from God grew in size throughout the time of Israel's history. Moses wrote additional works, the first five books of the Bible. Now, there are indications of that at some other places in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. For instance, Exodus 24.4, we get this uh, saying that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain of the twelve and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, but he wrote down those words. And Exodus 34, 27, <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> write, write these words. For in accordance with these words, <clears throat> I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So we, we get indications of that process. And then later in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, these first five books are called the books of Moses. Numbers 33.2, Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. So again, you get another indication in Numbers. Moses, as they're going along, Moses is writing down what's happening. He's keeping record. Um, and he did it because the Lord told him to do so, by command of the Lord. Here's another section, Deuteronomy 31.22 and 24-26. Moses wrote, Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for witness against you. So what is happening? God has told the people that they should build this tabernacle in the, in the middle of the tabernacle or the, the holiest place in the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies and there the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was. And the the, the, the original copy, the copy that Moses wrote, he said to Levi, now put this beside the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, there where God dwells in the midst of his people, there also the people had God's written words. And they were to have that as a witness against them. They were to pay attention to it, to realize that those were the words of God by which they were to live. So we have not just the Ten Commandments, the words of the Ten Commandments, but, but basically then we've got more books being added, Genesis, Exodus, and those go into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the Ten Commandments are in Exodus, and then they're put in Deuteronomy as well. So uh, now we've got the first five books of Moses. Don't add to it. Don't take from it, Moses said. But then what happens? Joshua added some more words. Joshua added to the words in the book of the law of God. Joshua 24, 6, and Joshua wrote these words. So what's the first book after Deuteronomy? If you have to look in your table of contents of the Bible, you can do that. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. I remember when I got to college my freshman year, um, I was trying to find a book in the Old Testament, and, and um, my college roommate, Jerry Brock, said, you know, Wayne, you really ought to memorize the books of the Bible. It isn't all that hard to do. Only 66 of them, so I did. I was kind of embarrassed. Here I was, a college student, I didn't know all the books in order. But Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Okay, Joshua. Joshua wrote these words. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. 
and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So Joshua is adding <clears throat> to the book of the law of God, or the, 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 it's the, the, the covenant document that defines the relationship between God and his people. Joshua is adding. In view of the command that the Lord gave through Moses not to add to the law, that was, don't take it on yourself. Don't think any, any of you can do that. It must have been that Joshua was convinced that God authorized the additional writing. Because Moses had said, you shall not add, not add or take from it. So I think God must have said, well, Joshua, you can't do it on your own, but I'm telling you, add to that book. So now you've got the story of the um, uh, people of Israel after Moses died, as they came into the promised land, the book of Joshua. And then others added more. Others in Israel, usually those who filled the office of a prophet, wrote additional words from God. And I was surprised when I looked up, I, I did a concordance study on, on the words for write and the word for book uh, in the Old Testament, how many times it talks about people actually writing these things down. Here are some verses. First Samuel 10, 25. Then Samuel, Samuel was a prophet. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote, there's that word, he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Before the Lord, what does that mean? That means next to the ark. Uh, in the in the in the um, in the tabernacle, right there at the center of the place where God dwelt among His people, there God has His words. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Now they would memorize them, and perhaps others would make copies and write them. We don't have any specific uh, record of that, but they're expected to meditate on them. So probably they had copies, but the original they laid it up before the Lord. Maybe they had copies of parts of it or something like that. Samuel is writing. But so now we've got, and here now the Acts of King David, First Chronicles 29, 29, from first to last, are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, that's another word for prophet, and in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the Chronicles of Gad the seer. So are these prophets, and they're writing the story of King David. See, I think what happened was God had a king to rule over his people and run the government, and then he had priests to offer sacrifices and take care of the temple. Then he had prophets, and prophets were to observe the events of the kingship, observe the events of the nation, and then not only record this happened, but also record this is what it means, and this is what God is doing. The Israelites went out to battle, and they trusted in the Lord, and they won a great victory, and God gave them a victory. Well, it was a prophet who knew that God had intervened. The Israelites went out to battle. And they didn't trust in the Lord, and they were disobedient, and they were defeated, and they fled before their enemies, for they didn't trust in the Lord. Those interpretative comments are God's interpretation of the event. And we got in the book of Amos this statement, Surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The prophets walked close to God, and he gave them insight into events. And then they recorded them under God's direction in Scripture. So the Bible is not just history. It's history plus interpretation. It's history plus insight into what God is doing through these events. Now, we can't write scripture today, and I'm going to come to that later. The canon is closed. But I'm just wondering if it wouldn't be wise for us to realize that when we pray, Maybe God will give us insight into the events of our lives as well. 
Does that happen sometimes? Something happens, you say, Lord, help me understand what you are doing in this. And I think we should do that. I think we should be encouraged by the Bible to ask God for wisdom. James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Something good happens in your life. Lord, now, what are you trying to say to this? What do you want me to learn from this? What do you want me to know from this? Something difficult comes into your life. Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? How do you want me to grow from this? How do you want me to respond to this? What are you doing? And you know, I think we should even pray for wisdom about world and national events. Um, I think a lot of people are wondering what, what in terms of the history of the world and in terms of God's purposes in the world, what is happening in New Orleans? What, what does that have to say about our nation? What God is doing in our nation? What his purposes are for our nation? How should we respond? I, I really think we, and I don't have a simple or quick answer to that. I think that's a hard question. And I think Christians will be thinking about that over the, over the next several weeks. Surely it means we should respond. We should show compassion. Surely we're going to hear stories of many answers to prayer and uh, many wonderful, probably self-sacrificial things that Christians have done to share their faith and show forth their faith in this and the tragic events. But uh, it wouldn't be wrong for us to pray and ask God for insight into events. Even, Lord, now, what does this mean about William Rehnquist dying last night and another Supreme Court vacancy and how should we pray? That kind of thing. Well, well, we do that imperfectly, but there were these prophets that did it perfectly because God gave them insight so that they could write down the events, uh, the acts of King David, the rights and duties of the kingship, the acts of Jehoshaphat, and then interpret them with God's insight. And so the prophets are adding here the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles 20, 34. From first to last are written in the chronicles of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. And this Jehu isn't here Jehu, the son of Hanani, he's not called a prophet, but he is called a prophet in 1 Kings 16, 7. So, again, a prophet having that responsibility. Here's more. 2 Chronicles 26, 22. <clears throat> now, the rest of the acts of Uzziah, that's another king. From first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. Isaiah is there. He's watching the king. He's watching the king do this, the king do that. His other servants do this. The other countries around doing this and that, and battles and wars and negotiations and treaties and trade and all this. He's saying, Lord, what, is he, what do you mean by that? And then he writes down the parts of it that God wants him to write down for the instruction of his people. Isaiah is writing that down. Second Chronicles 32, 32, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds. Behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And here Jeremiah, God commands Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. So that process is going on. Um, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second King. So all those are being added uh, to the Old Testament as time goes on. These books are being added uh, by the prophets whom God calls to interpret the events. <clears throat> and so now that went on and it went on and it went on. And when did it end? It ended about 435 B.C. The content of the Old Testament canon continued to grow until approximately 435 B.C. with the collect with the completion of Malachi. Where is Malachi in the Old Testament? Yeah, in our English Bibles, it's the last one. 
and historically, it's the last one too, about 435 BC. So, so what we have here is about 435 BC, for some reason, God stops speaking to the prophets. And in fact, we can go into a little more detail here at 435, because in the Old Testament, there are different kinds of literature. There's historical literature, like First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, like that. And then there's prophetic literature, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. And, and um, so I'm going to divide this in two. And the prophets up here, there was Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And Malachi is the last one, about 435 B.C., in the historical books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then after that, you've got this story of the exile and the return in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now Esther was queen to a king named. Well, this is a really hard Bible quiz. Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Greek name, Artaxerxes. Okay? So this is about 435 B.C. Now, once, nobody knew it was happening, you know, but all of a sudden people realized, wait a minute, where are the prophets? It gets to be about 425 B.C., 400 B.C., 350 B.C. And the Jewish people are saying, we haven't had any prophets. Where are the prophets? We used to have prophets among us. Where are they? And so there was this long period, what the Jewish people sometimes called the silence of heaven, where God wasn't speaking to his people anymore. It went on for a long, long time. They kept history. They kept the historical narrative of what was happening to the Jewish people, but there wasn't anybody who came along and said, thus says the Lord. Here are the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord said. So the subsequent history of the Jewish people was recorded in other writings, but they were not considered worthy to be included with the scriptures. And so now I'm going to quote from a whole lot of those other writings. And I'm going to put them in a different color here. I'll put them in green. There are other writings. And there are historical books, like the books of the Maccabees. That was a, a Jewish, prominent Jewish family. Um, and uh, I'll read some of these quotes. First Maccabees 4, 45 to 46, about 164 BC. And they thought it best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. That was the altar that was connected with the temple. The Gentiles uh, had come in and uh, uh, the, the, the Greek kingdoms after Alexander the Great uh, had come in and um, uh, offered a pig in sacrifice on the Jewish altar and it was unclean and, it was, and they did that intentionally just to horrify the Jews. And so what are they going to do with this altar that had been defiled? They didn't know. So they said, well, let's tear it down so it wouldn't be a lasting shame that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill 
until a prophet should come to tell what to do with them. What does that mean? No prophet. There's no Isaiah to go ask. There's no Moses to go ask. And there's no Jeremiah to go say, hey, what do we do? Nobody who had the words from God to tell them. What's interesting about this is, this is First Maccabees. This is part of the Apocrypha. This is, and it's, a, it's, it's thought to be quite a reliable historical book. But it's part of the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha itself, it's saying, there's no prophet around here. First Maccabees 9.27, about 160 B.C. So there's great distress in Israel, such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. If you analyze kind of the tone of that expression, it sounds like long ago, doesn't it? There was a great distress such as hadn't been since prophets ceased to appear among them. It's long in the past. They hadn't had any prophets. First Maccabees 14.41, around the same time. The Jews and their priests decided that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Now, what are the offices? What are the three offices in the Old Testament? There's prophet, priest, and king were the three offices that were leaders in the Jewish people. Well, let's see. Priest, you've got priests. And king, well, Simon Maccabeus is their leader and high priest, he's going to have both, and that'd be equivalent to a king. But where's the prophet? There's none. Okay, so they've got they've got uh, they've got priests, and they still have governmental leaders, a king or a ruler, prince, but they're waiting for a prophet to arise. Now Josephus. Josephus is this thought to be very very reliable Jewish historian. He was a Pharisee, and he was in the middle of mainstream Judaism. In Jerusalem, he lived 39 to 100 A.D., so just after the time of Christ. In a book called Against Appian, 138 to 42, which is written in 95 A.D., here he's he's sort of he's sort of chronicling and explaining what the Jewish people are, what they stand for, who they are. He says we do not possess myriads of inconsistent books conflicting with each other. Our books, those which are justly accredited, are but two and twenty and contain the record of all time. Now you say, wait a minute, 22. I thought there were 39 books in the Old Testament. You only got 22. Uh, the problem is they're counting them differently. Ezra and Nehemiah are counted as one. First and second Samuel are counted as one. You go like that, you combine. Uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations are counted as one. And the 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Hosea Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, those are all counted as one. So you combine. So anyway, the people who study this, and there's a footnote to Josephus, you have the same list that we have today. But he, here he is. Five are the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, comprising the laws and the traditional history from the birth of man down to the death of the lawgiver. This period falls only a little short of 3,000 years. From the death of Moses until Artaxerxes, who succeeded Xerxes as king of Persia, the prophets subsequent to Moses wrote the history of the events in their own time in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. That would be Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And these, then, these 13 books would be what we call the other historical books and the prophets. But what's this? What's important about Artaxerxes? See, he's locating that back at the end of the time of Esther. So, 
from the death of Moses until Artaxerxes. So again, he's saying about 435 BC. Uh, all these books were written. And now what does Josephus go on to say? This is all a quotation from Josephus. Then he goes on, the next sentence says, From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written, but it has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. That is a very important sentence for understanding the Jewish view of the Old Testament canon, what we call the Old Testament. They don't think it's old, but about, about what their, the, the canon of, uh, of their scriptures. So he's saying, well, then after that we've had other writings. We've got the exact history, but it's not worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because there are no more prophets. So we kept history, but it's basically it doesn't belong to scripture. And he goes on and says then, and uh, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, he's writing in 95 AD. So he's, he's talking 435, 530 years. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable, and it is an instinct with every Jew from the day of his birth to regard them as the decrees of God, to abide by them, and if need be, cheerfully to die for them. Okay, we have in the writings, the historical writings of the Apocrypha itself, no more prophets. We have in Josephus, writing quite a bit later, he says it all ended about 435 B.C. He doesn't give that because he doesn't count time according to how we count time before Christ. But, uh, but he dates it from, from Artaxerxes. And he says there's, there are other writings, but they're not like these earlier ones. Now, here's the question. In studying, let's see. If you were a historian and you wanted to look back at 2005 and find out what Americans think about Jesus Christ? Would you just read the New York Times? No. Would you? Would you just read Time Magazine? No. Would you? You you would have to go to a bunch of different sources, wouldn't you? You'd have to read some Christian magazines and other things. You kind of say, oh well, there are different views in the culture. And the more different sources you had, the more you'd get a, a kind of a perspective on what Americans in general think, and it'd be mixed. In studying Jewish literature around the time of Christ or so, in order to get a picture for what the Jewish people thought, you have to take snap snippets from different parts of Jewish literature. So what I've done is I had some earlier historical material from the Maccabees. I had history and sort of leading Jewish testimony from Josephus, basically speaking for the, the leadership of the Jews. But now, if you'll be patient, I want to look at some other Jewish literature after the time of 435 BC to see if it agrees that this was the end of the Old Testament, okay? And what I'm going to try to prove here is that no matter where you look in Jewish literature, you get a lot of different evidence from different kinds of literature saying no more Bible or no more scripture after uh, Malachi and after Esther, after uh, um, um, Agai, Zechariah, Malachi, after Malachi. So here's the Babylonian Talmud. Now that's written down after the time of the New Testament, but the thing about the Talmud 
is it's a collection of rabbinic sayings, sayings of the rabbis that grew over time and more and more was added to it and it was memorized and it was passed on by oral tradition. So you date it by seeing who are the rabbis that are talked about in the stories. And then you also see if you can find different kinds of rabbinic literature. So here we're going to do this. The Babylonian Talmud, this is rabbinic literature in the tractate, they call it, uh, the, the section of it called Sanhedrin. Our rabbis taught since the death of the last prophets, who? Hey, guys, Zechariah Malachi. Oh, very interesting. Same thing, conforming to what we've seen or confirming it. The Holy Spirit of prophetic inspiration departed from Israel. The Holy Spirit departed. Yet they were still able to avail themselves of the bath coal. What's the bath coal? I've put in here a little, this is my, in the square brackets, it's my words. Literally, daughter of a voice, bath coal, Hebrew. That is an echo or a voice from heaven. So no Holy Spirit for prophecies, but occasionally there was a voice from heaven. And here's a story. Once when the rabbis were met in the upper chamber of Goria's house in Jericho, a bath coal was heard from heaven saying, there is one amongst you who is worthy that the Shekinah should rest on him as it did on Moses. What is the Shekinah? Glory of God. All right. There is one amongst you who is worthy that the Shekinah should rest on him as it did on Moses, but his generation did not merit it. The sages present set their eyes on Hillel the elder. They all looked at Hillel. When did Hillel live? He was active and taught 30 B.C. to 10 A.D. And when he died, they lamented and said, Alas, the pious man, the humble man, the disciple of Ezra is no more. What's the point? They thought that prophecy came to an end, that scripture came to an end with Malachi. That's the point of this. Okay? But you might say, hey, that's only one instance in that section of literature, the sayings of the rabbis. But there's more. In Tosefta, which is another collection of the sayings of the rabbis that was kind of things added, but they weren't in the, in the Mishnah or Talmud, uh, tractate Sota 13.3, sections A to D. When the latter prophets died, that is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were back to the same place. Then the Holy Spirit came to an end in Israel, but even so they made them hear heavenly messages through an echo, and that in Hebrew would same be, be the same phrase, bath kol. Sages gathered in the upper room of the house of Guria and Jericho, and a heavenly echo came forth and said to them, There is a man among you who is worthy to receive the Holy Spirit, but this generation is unworthy of such an honor. They all set their eyes upon Hillel the elder. When they died, when he died, they said about him, Woe for the humble man, the pious man, the disciple of Ezra. Same story, different kind, different collection of literature, and it's also in the Babylonian Talmud in something called Yoma 9b. And it's also in in um, comments on the Song of Solomon called Song of Solomon Rabbah uh, 393. So that story recurs again and again. And when that happens, you say, Hey, that's pretty. That's more and more reliable because I'm finding it again and again. And it's just showing that they all thought no more scripture after this point. Going back to the Apocrypha, there's another section in the Apocrypha called Prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Young Men. First or second century BC, it says, at this time there is no prince or prophet or leader. Anyway, here, no prophet. Now we go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls, a community that had kind of withdrawn itself, a very, very strict community, often called the Essene community, off uh, in the area of the Dead Sea, and these scrolls were discovered, started in 1947. And... Um, in one of their writings, The Scroll of the Rule, they talk about until the coming of the prophet and the anointed of Aaron and Israel. There, and actually in Hebrew, um, um, 
anointed is plural uh, than the messiahs. They were looking for two messiahs. But, but here, they're looking for a prophet. So again, in another kind of literature, waiting. They don't have a prophet among them. Now back to the Apocrypha. Sirach 49.10, 180 B.C. May the bones of the twelve prophets revive from where they lie, for they comforted the people of Jacob. Um, what is important about that? That's saying 180 B.C. They had this awareness that the twelve prophets, the twelve minor prophets, were viewed as a group. And I haven't put all the quotations up here, but that is uh, already an established collection. So that's multiple testimony to the idea that there was consent that these books belonged in the Bible and not others. There's a whole list. I guess I'm uh, maybe, yeah, I guess I can read this. Babylonian Talmud, Bababathra, 14b to 15a, again back in this rabbinic collection. Who wrote the scriptures? Now, they may not have remembered everything correctly. In some cases, it means write originally. In some of these, it's going to mean recopy and edit in final form. But Moses wrote his own book in the portion of Balaam and Job. Joshua wrote the book which bears his name and the last eight verses of the Pentateuch. Why did they say Joshua wrote the last eight verses of Deuteronomy? That's the story of Moses' death. <laughs> and they decided that he didn't write that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Samuel wrote the book which bears his name and Judges and Ruth. David wrote the book of Psalms, including in it the work of the elders, Adam, Melchizedek, Abram, Moses, Heman, Yedithan, Asaph, and the three sons of Korah. Jeremiah wrote the book that bears his name, and the book of Kings and Lamentations. Hezekiah and his book colleagues wrote Isaiah, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. I think that means they collected and edited them in final form. The men of the great assembly wrote Ezekiel, the twelve minor prophets, Daniel, and the scroll of Esther. Oh, Esther's misspelled. Ezra wrote the book that bears his name, includes Nehemiah, and the genealogy of the book of Chronicles up to his own time. Um, well, who finished the book of Chronicles, Nehemiah, the son of Hawkeye? What's important about that is it's got, it, if you go through it, you can check off all the books in the Old Testament that we have today, and they're all there. So now what do we say about the Apocrypha? This, I have this Oxford Annotated Apocrypha. And if you were uh, in a Roman Catholic church or you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would have these books, the books of the Apocrypha. First Ezra, Esdras, Second Esdras, Tobit, Judas. Some of these are just stories, uh, heroic stories of people's faith in God and how they trusted him and he delivered them. And I think in many cases these are probably reliable stories, but I don't have to believe that they're all in fact reliable. There may have been some additions to them because I don't, I don't believe they're God's words. I think they're just history that the Jewish people preserve. Additions to the book of Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, or the Wisdom of Jesus, Son of Sirach, Baruch, Letter of Jeremiah, Prayer of Azariah, and Song of the Three Young Men, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, Prayer of Manasseh, first book of the Maccabees, second book of the Maccabees. Those are the books of the Apocrypha. Now, should we count those as scripture? That's the question. Um, hmm. Oh, yes. Point one was a long time ago. Point one was the subsequent history of the Jewish people was recorded in other writings, but the Jewish people didn't consider them worthy to be included with the scriptures. That's on your outline. 
point two is very important. There's no record of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of the canon. Jesus and the have you not read? Is it not written? Does not say in your law? Are you a teacher of Israel? You do not understand this? He's quoting the Old Testament. There's never any argument about what's in and what's out. And then Jesus and the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament as authoritative words of God over 295 times, but they never cite any of the books of the Apocrypha as having divine authority. So those books were around, but Jesus and the New Testament authors don't quote them as God says, it is written, anything like that. I think that's very important. Now you say to me, why don't you give me an exact number? Over 295 times. Well, can't you exactly count? What's wrong with you, Wayne? Why can't you give me exact number of quotations from the Old Testament? What's the problem? Sometimes you're not sure if it's a quote or not. How many words do you have to have the same to know it's a quote from Isaiah? Is three words the same? Four words? So there are some borderline ones. So, But at least 295 times, probably more than that. They're quoting the Old Testament, just going back and quoting, quoting, quoting. God says it is written, it is written, but never quoting the Apocrypha. Now someone says, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Paul quote some other writing when he's speaking on Mars Hill, on the Areopagus? In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's quoting Epimenides of Crete and another Greek writer named Aratus. And in Titus 1.12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Again, he's quoting this guy he must have liked a lot, Epimenides of Crete. <laughs> oh, and I didn't put the next word, what did he say? Right after that he says, this saying is true. <laughs> and where is Titus when he's writing to them? When he's writing to Titus, he's in Crete. <laughs> so, therefore, rebuke them sharply, because they're always like this. It's a funny thing. But these, these are quotes from other literature. They're illustrations. They're not appeals to divine authority. It isn't like God says or anything like that. Even though he words, used the word prophet, that word had a broader sense, sometimes meant spokesman and things in the first century. And then there's this other objection that sometimes students bring up. They say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't Jude 14, Jude 14 quote first Enoch? It was about these, it was also about these that Enoch seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's from, uh, it's a kind of quote from First Enoch, which is another Jewish writing, 60 verse 68 and 19. Uh, it's a Jewish work, but the important thing is that's not part of the Apocrypha. It's a, there's just all sorts of this Jewish literature out there, and Jude is quoting it, but he's citing it as a confirming illustration. He's not citing it as an appeal to divine authority of the words. And, and nobody, I, I don't think... I, I just don't think any of the New Testament authors would have thought that that was actually God's words. There's such weird stuff in First Enoch. I've read a fair bit of it, and it's just visions. And I just it's strange. But for some reason, um, Jude just decided to, to to quote it. All right, just like Paul quoted these other Greek authors, but it's not quoting it as scripture. So what should we say then about the Apocrypha? These books were never accepted by the Jews or by Jesus or the New Testament authors as scripture. The early church had mixed opinions, but most of the evidence is against viewing the Apocrypha as scripture. 
there's no Hebrew original for these books like there is for the rest of the old for, like there is for the Old Testament. And no early church father who knew Hebrew ever thought that this should be scripture. The earliest Christian list of Old Testament books, AD 170, Melito of Sardis, does not include the Apocrypha. Eusebius and Athanasius, these are early church fathers, rejected the Apocrypha. Why Why does the Roman Catholic Church accept the Apocrypha as scripture? That's the puzzle. The Jewish people didn't have it as scripture. Jesus didn't have it as scripture. The New Testament authors didn't have it as scripture. And in the early church, these were thought to be valuable books for Jewish history. And some people thought it should be scripture, but, but many did not. How did it get in the Roman Catholic Bible? Well, in 404, I didn't put this on the, on the, uh, on the outline. I think I have time to put this in. In 404 AD, um, the, the New Testament is written in what? Originally? In Greek. And the Old Testament was Hebrew, and there was a Greek translation. So you've got these Greek Bibles floating all around. But 404, now, um, what empire was kind of dominant? Roman Empire. It's not any longer Alexander the Greek and the Greek kingdoms and 300 BC and like that. It's, it's the Roman Empire. And in Rome, the main language is, so you've got a problem. Bible in Greek, or Greek and Hebrew, but at least in Greek, people speaking Latin more and more. 404, you're over 300 years after the time of the New Testament. What do you need then? If the Bible's in Greek and people speak Latin. You need a Latin Bible, right? And there were quite a few different kind of partial translations. But the Pope said, you know, we need a standard Bible here. And so, so he said, look, find me the best scholar alive today. Who's the best scholar? Who's the best scholar? Everybody said, well, the most brilliant scholar knows Greek and Hebrew really well is Jerome. So the Pope said, Jerome... I want you to translate me a Latin translation, please. I'm not sure if he used those exact words. <laughs> and Jerome said, okay, I'll get you a Latin translation. And that became the Latin Vulgate. But Jerome said, I'm not going to put the Apocrypha in it. And the Pope said, put the Apocrypha in it. I like it. And Jerome said, no. And the Pope said, put it in. And Jerome said, okay, I'll put it in but it's not part of the canon, it's just books of the church. So it got in the Latin translation and it became more widely used, but there was still a lot of dispute through the history of the church. The Roman Catholic Church did not officially declare the Apocrypha, and they didn't even keep all the books, just 12 or 15, um, to be part of the canon until 1546 at the Council of Trent. So 1546, the Roman Catholic Church declared the Apocrypha to be scripture. Why did that happen? Now, when we're thinking 1546, we should be thinking, oh, I think I know that there was something going on in the church at that time. There was this guy named Martin Luther in 1517 that had posted his 95 Theses and started the Protestant Reformation. And so 1546, the Council of Trent, this is the Roman Catholic answer to Martin Luther and Protestantism. And in the Apocrypha, the Roman Catholic Church found there was some verses that said you could pray for the dead and you could make offerings to help the dead get out of their suffering. And there's a lot of teaching on being saved or justified by works, by your own merit. 
And so it fit in with the anti-Reformation teaching. And it was then that the Roman Catholic Church accepted it as scripture. Now, now, we have a difference in how something gets to be scripture. Protestants say it gets to be scripture because it's God's words that he spoke and he made them to be his words. And we can't make something to be God's words that isn't. We just have, we have to recognize it. Catholics say, no, the church decides what is scripture. The church decided that the Apocrypha is scripture, therefore it is. And my response to that is, no, we really just have an honest difference of opinion here. If I, I shouldn't do this, I wouldn't do it, but if I Xeroxed a copy of this $20 bill, it wouldn't be real money. And um, I couldn't take it to the mayor of Phoenix or to Governor of Napolitano or even to President Bush. President Bush can't say, oh yeah, this Xerox copy is real money. He can't make something to be real money that isn't printed by the United States Mint. My job is only to look at, see, is it real or is it a counterfeit? And so in that way, what the church had to do, it had to examine the writings of the Old Testament and decide, are these God's words or not? Did God have them be his words and included in the canon or not? And the whole history of the Apocrypha is not. And not all the decrees of the church in the world can make something to be scripture, which isn't scripture. So Protestants and Catholics have a difference of opinion on that. My conclusion is the writings of the Apocrypha should not be regarded as part of scripture. They do not claim for themselves the same authority, even in the books themselves. They were not regarded as canonical by the Jews. They were not considered scripture by Jesus and the apostles, and they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. And we could go into that in more detail later. So, whoops. Next week is going to be New Testament. There we are. So, now, here's the conclusion to take away. Did God direct history so that the right books are in the Old Testament? Yes, absolutely. The ones that are supposed to be there are there. You can trust them. And there's nothing in the, there's nothing missing uh, that should be in there that you need to look around for and find out. Any questions or comments on that? Real quick, yeah, Ross. Yeah, the, there was no... The, the Old Testament Ruach was spirit in Hebrew, and Pneuma was spirit in the New Testament. So, and it was the same with the Old Testament Greek translation was Pneuma, yeah, spirit, same word. Meant the same, yeah, close. <laughs> That's a harder question than I can answer, right? I'll take just a couple more uh, minutes on this. Um, Chantel? Yeah. Um, I spent an hour or two on that about a month ago, whether Catholics are Christians. My answer is some. <laughs> Bammy says, like, some Baptists are Christians. <laughs> George, I, and I, I have a whole tape on that, but, so I'll have to defer that to George Ann. I'm, I'm not Georgian, and I'd have to look up stuff on that. The Jews have, the Jewish canon, Hebrew Bible, has a uh, different arrangement of order of books, so Second Chronicles is last. But they knew that Malachi historically was last. No question. That's in Josephus. It's in the rabbis. So, Or it's in the rabbis, anyway. Okay. Any more over here? Questions or comments? I know that. I, somehow I have to get myself reformed to get through the lesson a little quicker so we can do a little more discussion. Next week, we're still here, and we'll do New Testament canon. And then the following week, we go 
to the gym. Let's uh, let's pray. Lord, we we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for your goodness to your people in progressively revealing your will over time in increasing measure and uh, giving your people this great treasure of your words. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this. Make your word alive to us in our hearts, even this week as we read. In Jesus' name, amen.